Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is orthopedic surgeon Dr. Andrew Bolchinsky of Disc, Sport, and Spine in Marina Del Rey. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Now let's meet orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Andrew Bolchinsky. We're here at Disc Sports and Spine in Marina Del Rey, California, with orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Andrew Bolchinsky, who has a special interest in sports injuries of the shoulder and the knee. Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Now, I met you because one of my favorite bicyclists in Los Angeles had surgery with you, and I was just speaking with him about you. And he said, the thing he remembers most about you was your warm smile and your ability to make him feel comfortable because you were an athlete too. That, that's correct. Um, in my family, I have an older brother, younger sister, and uh, I think it's, it's not a stretch to say I'm the most athletic individual <laughs> in the family. So I've always enjoyed athletics, running, uh, rollerblading, skiing, uh, snow skiing windsurfing, so that's always been a significant part of my life. Lots of sports, and you're at a sports medicine place here now. But before we get back to what you're doing here, I like to back up and look at where did you come from and how did you get here? Now, where were you born and raised? So it's uh, you've uh, invited uh, a pretty extensive story. Uh, I was uh, born in Poland in a small town called Soletskoyavski in Poland in what was at that time communist Poland. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you left Poland? So I was uh, 11, uh, almost 12 years old when my parents decided to take uh, their three kids, uh, my older brother, my younger sister, and myself, and defect to Austria because leaving Poland altogether as a family was, was quite difficult in those days behind the Iron Curtain. Sure. So how long were you in Austria? Uh, for nearly a year. So you all, when you went there, you already knew it was going to be just a way station? So on the way to Austria, actually, my parents' ultimate plan uh, was to immigrate to Canada. Mm -hmm. And they've already, actually, in the previous four years before we left Poland, uh, my parents had a, an immigration visa for our whole family to Canada. But just the politics in Poland just didn't allow them to, to use that visa. So you couldn't go straight there. You went to Austria Correct. first. And then were you able to go to Canada, or was there another stop on the way? So my parents thought that, well, we'll be in Austria for maybe two, three, maybe four weeks. It turned out to be almost a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, during that stay, we were refugees, and we just waited until our landed immigrant status in Canada was approved, and then we immigrated to Canada. How did the move from Austria to Toronto go? Um, I mean, that, that was... 
pretty smooth actually from Austria initially in Canada. We lived in Edmonton for three years, mm-hmm. and after that, we moved to Toronto for uh, in 1985. Mm-hmm. And how did you choose the University of Toronto? Because you were living there, or was that what moved the family there? Um, actually, what moved the family is just the the jobs in in Edmonton and Alberta. What uh, the opportunities weren't quite there. So my parents decided to move the, f- uh, the whole family uh, to Toronto, a uh, much larger uh, city, uh, more cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. more international, yeah. more opportunities all in all. And th- that's where I attended high school. And then I chose University of Toronto because of um, in academic excellence and it was right uh, uh, very close by geographically. How was your English at that point? Actually, before moving to Canada, and we began learning English uh, while in Austria. So you started learning English while you were also learning German. <laughs> so, g- good question. For part of that year, uh, stay in Austria. the The local schools were very accommodating, so the Austrian schools formulated a, a curriculum for us to maximize the English since they knew that we were going, uh, in in the case of my family, to Canada. Uh, other refugees were, let's say, going to Australia, South Africa, or the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so you were being prepared with some English. And how old were you when you got to Edmonton? And how old were you when you got to Toronto? So to Edmonton, I, I was 12 years old, mm-hmm. and then when we moved to uh, Toronto, I was 15 years old. So you were in high school yes. when you were there. What sports were you playing at that age? At that point, uh, skiing and started getting to running. Uh-huh. Running and, uh, yeah. You look like a runner. Okay, so when along the way did you decide you were going to be a doctor? So uh, initially, my mother being a dentist, and also uh, I always enjoyed working with my hands, I decided to uh, pursue a career in dentistry. Mm-hmm. So uh, we lived in Toronto at the time where I completed high school and two years of un- undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto. And my major was human f- uh, physiology. Now, the next step of your journey seemed to me like a twist and a turn when I was looking at it chronologically. It's like, he's going to med school, so why did he go get a dentistry degree? But now that I know your mother was a dentist, you wanted to become a dentist first. And and did you practice dentistry? I did. So I did a dental internship at the Toronto General Hospital, Uh, and that was a one-year program. And what, what I found very interesting... At that time, and probably still now, uh, Toronto General Hospital is the largest transplant center in Canada. So in the dental department, uh, myself and other dentists were taking care of a lot of soon-to-be transplant recipients. So what we had to do is provide uh, dental clearance, so to make sure that uh, these uh, transplant candidates don't have any sources of infection, right. potential infection, mm-hmm. because after the transplant procedure, they would be on major immunosuppressive uh, therapies. So that they wouldn't reject the organ. Correct, mm-hmm. yeah. Or the organ would not be compromised, but let's say by an infection. infection. Sure. 
So and so during that time, and I occasionally a- am asked this question: the question whether I dislike dentistry. Actually, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But during that year, what I found more interesting is actually all the medical problems that these individuals presented with. So that got you interested in going to medical school, or is that, or is that not? Quite the story. Uh, so there was one more intermediary step okay. between those. So uh, after completing a year of dental internship at the Toronto General Hospital, I pursued a specialty of dentistry at uh, Northwestern University, which was oral and maxillofacial surgery. And what's that? That is surgery of the the mouth and the face. Mm-hmm involving traumatic injuries, infections, uh, degenerative conditions of the mouth, of the teeth. So it was still in sort of the same realm of dentistry. Correct. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Next came a general surgery internship and orthopedic surgery residency at Loyola University Medical Center outside of Chicago. How many years were you there? So that combined those five years. Okay. All five years. Yeah. So it's one year of general surgery, but... That was actually the first year that the internship was already combined together and added onto the four years of orthopedic surgery. So the the first year was just called the general surgery internship, but it just was pretty seamless. Well, you have had one of the more complicated journeys getting to where you are that I've been talking with people. So let's keep going. I read that you were an avid skier and cyclist. Is that why you did your sports medicine fellowship? training at Lake Tahoe Orthopedic Institute. Yes. <laughs> in a yes. word. <laughs> in, in a word, yes. Uh-huh. Um, I, I looked at a, a number of uh, sports medicine uh, fellowship programs, and uh, the, the one in Lake Tahoe appealed to me uh, because I, I felt it would offer me very uh, excellent training. Um, you also got a lot of those kinds of injuries to deal with. Too. Absolutely. I mean, there's sports injuries, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the the patients who came in would be single extremity uh, ski hill uh, traumas. Uh, so whether shoulder dislocation, knee injuries with torn ACL, um, sometimes actually pretty uh, pretty nasty fractures, femur fractures, mm-hmm. just two skiers or snowboarders collide, colliding on the hill. Yeah. And, and what I gathered during the interview process was that this, this program was very much a hands-on, mm-hmm. uh, where s- programs can vary quite a, quite a lot, where some, in some training programs, whether it's uh, residency or uh, spe- uh, subspecialty fellowship training, uh, there can be a spectrum where the, the mentor, the attending, does all the operating and the um, the trainee just observes and is able to uh, absorb knowledge that way. But I, uh, I, at the Lake Tahoe Orthopedic Institute, as well as actually at the Loyola Orthopedic Surgery Program, uh, that program was also just very hands-on, where with appropriate amount of supervision, uh, but really from the initial days of, of each of those programs, I was able to, to perform surgeries. Well, that must be real satisfying to not just have to sit on the sidelines, but to be able to get in and start learning the techniques. Did you have any special um, joints that you liked working on early on? Because I know right now you look at shoulders and knees primarily, and you also will do some elbows and ankles. But were you doing everything in the early days? Uh, Definitely. 
all subspecialties of orthopedic surgery were part of my uh, orthopedic uh, residency training, actually, including spine and hand surgery, mm-hmm. foot and ankle, which I don't do. And, and that's, I think, uh, true for probably most, if not all, orthopedic surgery training programs. Mm-hmm. So then during the training, uh, I think most individuals tailor uh, their further subspecialty training according to their, their preferences and their likes. Probably in the strengths that they find out that they have along the way, too. If you're good at something, you probably start to like it a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for example, spine surgery, I found it very interesting, very fascinating, but just it was not fun enough. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, probably because there was just maybe too much at stake. I mean, yeah. with certain traumas, I mean, some individuals uh, may have uh, significant neurologic injuries, which may be lifelong. And those are just aspects that I just, I suppose, chose not to have to deal with. So tell me what is most fun about doing a shoulder surgery. So with I gravitated towards uh, shoulder, taking care of problems of the shoulder and knee. Mm-hmm. And most of, or a lot of the procedures that I perform now are arthroscopic. So what, what appealed to me, uh, taking care of those injuries and, and conditions, is the minimally invasive arthroscopic approach. So a little puncture site here, a little puncture site there. You're using miniature tools, microscopic tools, a camera inside the joint. Correct. And you're in and out within how long? Half an hour, an hour? Uh, it depends on the procedure, mm-hmm. but uh, most of my procedures these days can be less than an hour to mm-hmm. maybe about two hours. Mm-hmm. Which um, ones take two hours now? Uh, for example, uh, just actually recently I had an individual who had a rotator cuff tear. Mm-hmm. He also had an anterior labral tear, which was extensive, required placing four anchors to anatomically repair the labrum back to the edge of the, the socket. So the anterior is the front. And the yes. labrum is the fibrocartilage that runs around the socket side of Correct. the shoulder joint. Correct. Yeah. It runs uh, 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that individual also had a frayed biceps tendon. So I also performed a biceps tenodesis after fixing the labrum and the rotator cuff. So it was really three procedures in, in one. Tenodesis? So a, a tenodesis is reattaching a tendon in a location that's different than the original anatomic position. If you had attached it back to its normal footing, what would you call that? It's a reattachment. A reattachment, a repair. Well, okay. So two hours when you're doing three different things doesn't sound like it's <laughs> too long for me. Yeah, it definitely does not feel like it's, it's very long. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned for more of this conversation with Dr. Andrew Bolchinski. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. We're back with Dr. Andrew Bolchinski. Before you came to DISC, you worked at the Ventura County Medical Center. How did you choose Ventura, or did it choose you? So I, I just found Ventura County Hospital to be a great opportunity as a first job out of training mm-hmm. because the uh, patients that I was required to see and take care of 
covered a wide range from trauma to degenerative conditions and more minor aches and pains. So you had a good mix of demographics of what kind of people you were going to see, and it kind of got you a good start. Would you say that sums it up? Definitely. Uh-huh. Um, How long were you there before you came down here to DISC? So I was at Ventura County for two and a half years uh-huh. before coming to Marina del Rey and joining DISC. And what led you here? So after Ventura County, it was a great uh, learning experience. Uh, I was able to hone my practice skills. And then really my ultimate goal was to, to be in private practice. Mm-hmm. And that's why I decided to, to relocate to Marina del Rey. And this being an ambulatory outpatient spine surgery and, and sports medicine place, that must have been a, a whole new kind of experience. Absolutely. Great experience, great opportunity. What I um, Actually, I had already known Dr. Human Melamed uh, from our residency days in Chicago, oh. where we were at, based at different residency programs, but we both met and uh, worked at the Shriners Hospital in Chicago. So he was so, already here, and so did you just say, hey, I'm looking to come down to L.A. and work in private practice, or... Yes, so I reconnected with Dr. Melamed and got to know some of the other physicians, uh, Dr. Robert Bray, uh, Dr. Fred Nicola, and I just found that philosophically, I think we had a lot in common where uh, we all share philosophy of minimal, minimally invasive techniques. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, we share the philosophy of really surgery being a last resort. Yes. So, and if procedures are performed, um, again, they're the most minimal procedure that will be effective to manage the patient's problem. So that's all part of your approach to taking care of your patients and your philosophy in handling your practice. Yes. So tell me more about that. What I've, I've heard you say that you want the patient to be a partner in the whole process. Correct. I, I believe we've, as a society, have come a long way from, let's say, uh, 50 or more years ago where there was a very paternalistic approach, uh, paternalistic relationship between a physician and, and their patients mm-hmm. where the doctor would just dictate what is done and that, that went unquestioned. I tend to involve my patients in the decision-making process. I like to invite the patient uh, to become fully involved and and educate them so they can fully understand what the problem is and then what the various treatment options are so that they can make a fully informed decision. Mm -hmm. Because then I think the outcomes will be better if the patient understands what they're doing and why they're doing that. And what they're in for. What's the recovery like? Absolutely. What's their life going to be like afterwards? What are their expectations? Absolutely. Yeah. Not infrequently, I will recommend that uh, patients go to physical therapy, let's say if they have shoulder pain, and some of them push back, and they say they're not interested in doing that. They because want you to fix them. They don't want to have to do the work. Absolutely. Do you help get them past that thinking process? So, so I, I like to explain to them that surgery is not always the 100% um, magic solution. 
that life will be perfect again or the shoulder will be perfect, a good number of these patients will go to physical therapy and they will actually be very surprised how effective physical therapy can be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I do go to, to at length sometimes to explain to them why I recommend physical therapy. And I find that when I get the buy-in from them, when they understand why we're doing this, then they're just much more likely to, to participate and and put in their full effort. Yeah, and even after the surgery, they have to earn back the range of motion and the strength that they're gonna lose a couple of weeks and they're gonna lose strength after the surgery. So there's that sort of dip in fitness level. They gotta fight their way back from that. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and shoulder, in the case of shoulder surgery, that's a great example where doing surgery on the shoulder, let's the for example a rotator cuff repair, and then not doing any physical therapies is is just a horrible idea, uh, and is set up for failure. Mm -hmm. So, and I tell patients uh, after surgery, my my work is done. Now their tough work begins, when they need to begin physical therapy, regain the range of motion and and strengthening, and on average recovery from rotator cuff repair surgery, depending on the circumstances, the size of the tear can can range from six to twelve months. Oh, most surgeries do take six to 12 months to really feel like you're normal again. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Now, a surgery that I find very intriguing, and I know that one of my friends who does the same surgery you do, the superior capsular reconstruction, he went to Tokyo to learn it from someone who I think pioneered it there. Did, where did you learn how to do that? And let's describe what that surgery is. Uh, the superior capsular reconstruction is a fairly recent uh, development mm -hmm. in the surgical world. So just, just to provide a little background, one of the more challenging problems as far as shoulder problems go is rotator cuff tearing. And one fact that I like to share with my patients uh, is that Approximately 50% of all individuals in society who are 60 years old will have a rotator cuff tear because the, the rotator cuff tendons degenerate and they become weaker over time and they just degenerate. And a lot of these individuals may not even be aware that they have a rotator cuff tear. What kind of movements cause that? A lot of it can be uh, from overhead activity where there's an impingement uh, mm -hmm. of the rotator cuff under the acromion, mm -hmm. which is the bony roof of the shoulder. You can have a little beak on the end of it, and it can cut into the muscle when you reach overhead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the more irritation there is, the more the bursa may thicken. Uh, there's inflammation. The acromion responds by uh, developing bone spurs, which then just worsens the problem. Yeah. So 50% of people 60 or over either have or are going to have a rotator cuff tear. Correct. So what does this surgery do to help resolve that? A lot of these individuals can do quite well with uh, a rotator cuff repair. And I think these days uh, probably the best way to approach this is arthroscopic, where a camera uh, about the size of a typical pen or pencil is mm -hmm. placed in the shoulder to visualize the structures and then the tendons, the rotator cuff tendons, which are detached from the bone, are reattached to bone using anchors. Mm -hmm. Now, occasionally, when these rotator cuff tears are longstanding, there's atrophy of the muscle. Uh, the muscle 
becomes shorter and the tendon is so stiff that it's not possible to bring the tendon back to the bone to the original position where it, where it tore off. So how does this new surgery come in? So superior capsular reconstruction was developed about 10 to 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was really because of necessity, because in Japan, reverse shoulder arthroplasty has not been available uh, until about three, four years ago. So let's explain arthroplasty. So arthroplasty is um, a procedure on a joint which improves the articular surfaces or the the joint surfaces. Yeah. And so arthroplasty can be replacing a worn out cartilage and bone with metal and plastic surfaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So therefore that joint is not uh, as painful as before. So now when it's reverse, tell me what that is. So reverse shoulder arthroplasty is a concept from Europe, which has been available f- for decades. And there have been many generations uh, over time that have been improved. And the concept is that with a shoulder, the main ball and socket joint of the shoulder when it's arthritic, in combination with a torn rotator cuff tear, a standard shoulder arthroplasty or total shoulder replacement uh, is not applicable mm-hmm. because the, the forces are not optimized and there's loss of the normal fulcrum in the shoulder, which would then cause the components of the standard total shoulder arthroplasty to loosen. Okay, so now we're going to put the socket on the ball side of the joint, the top of the arm, and we're going to put the ball on the scapula. On the the scapula, correct. So you put whichever side of the ball and the socket are, they're now reversing positions. Correct. Yeah, to recap normal anatomy, so the shoulder uh, joint is a ball and socket joint. Mm -hmm. It's a very shallow socket with a ball. And the socket is a process of the shoulder blade. Yes. The ball is the upper end of the arm bone. Mm -hmm. So when the rotator cuff tendons, and there are four, which originate from the shoulder blade and attach to the ball, they actually hold the ball in the socket and help to steer it and optimize the, the forces. Perfect, yeah. Now, when the rotator cuff tears... The, those muscle and tendon units are not able to center the ball in the socket. So effectively what happens, the, the deltoid muscle, which is the large uh, muscle that gives the shoulder its shape, mm-hmm. is really, it's not a fine motor muscle. It just, uh, uh, it's more of a power mover. Yeah, yeah. And then what it does, it, it just pushes the humeral head, the ball up into the acromion, and that can actually, over time, with long-standing rotator cuff tear, cause arthritis mm-hmm. in the ball and socket mm-hmm. because there's loss of the fulcrum where the ball is not centered yeah, in the socket. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, how long does it take you to do one of those surgeries? So, I mean, a reverse shoulder replacement. So then what happens is to reestablish the, the fulcrum and the center rotation, the, the socket is reamed mm. and what we call a glenosphere. So the ball is actually placed on the socket side, if you can picture that. Do they t- actually take the, the ball off the head of the humor? So they make it yes. an artificial one. It's an artificial metal one, okay. exactly. Okay. And then on the head of the humerus, the round part of the bone is cut away and a socket is placed on that. And then what happens is 
when the deltoid muscle pulls up, the socket is able to rotate around the glenosphere. Okay, so that, that's what a reverse shoulder replacement is. So what are they both made of? One is made of plastic and one's metal, like in most joints? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, the ball is made of metal, and then the on the socket side, there's a metal stem, mm-hmm. sometimes a very short stem that's implanted in the humerus, and it has a plastic socket, so it's a composite. Wow, well, that's such an elegant solution. Um, you've been doing this enough years now that I want to ask you, when you look to the future, do you see any new technology or any new surgeries that you're excited about? Um, I, I think what uh, the reverse shoulder arthroplasty uh, holds a lot of promise. However, uh, it is a procedure which actually has triple the complication rate of a oh. of a standard shoulder replacement. No one's told me that before. That's so a real it's, drawback. So it's not an ideal. I mean, in some individuals can be very helpful, but it, it can be uh, fraught with uh, complications, loosening, uh, loss of bone, including mm-hmm. scapular notching. So in younger individuals, uh, superior capsular reconstruction uh, may actually be a, a v- excellent alternative. And in younger individuals who uh, perhaps who don't have arthritis in the ball and socket joint or who may have only early arthritis and, let's say, continue to be athletic and active weightlifters uh, in whom a, a reverse shoulder arthroplasty would be contraindicated, a superior capsular reconstruction would be the best alternative. And what that involves is a dermal allograft, uh, which is tissue which is uh, taken from a cadaver, okay. and it's, it's processed to uh, really minimize the risk of rejection. And where the rotator cuff tendons are deficient, or they're not repairable to bring them back over to the, the humerus side, the graft is placed from the socket side to the ball side at the top of the shoulder. And what that actually creates is enough tension to provide stability to the humeral head, both in a superior and inferior direction. Up and down. Up mm-hmm. and down, yes. Mm-hmm. And then there's some question uh, whether it's merely a spacer, but studies have shown that it provides more than just a spacer function. So we've been talking about the shoulder. Now, just please tell me what your favorite knee surgery is to do. So in the knee, the most common uh, problems are meniscus tears, cartilage problems, cartilage tears, defects, as well as ACL, mm-hmm. anterior cruciate ligament tears. And with an ACL tear, there typically is a lot of uh, disability. Yeah. Uh, a lot of loss of function, and those typically occur in individuals who are tend to be younger, active, athletic, and really the optimal way to get an individual back to their previous level of function is uh, anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Now, do you use the middle third of the patellar tendon or the hamstring graft? Because those are the two most popular that people do, or they take tissue from the patient and use that to create a new ACL ligament. Correct. So, I mean, a little background. In the past, I mean, decades ago, ACL, just to repair of the torn ligament, has been 
attempted, but the results have not been very good. So then, as you mentioned, what is done now is really the standardist uh, reconstruction, which means bringing in new tissue. Mm -hmm. And this can be either the patient's own tissue, which is called autograft, Mm -hmm. or cadaver tissue, which is allograft. And I do not take the central third of the patellar tendon because some of the potential complications are pain at the front of the knee indefinitely, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, pain with kneeling. Mm -hmm. And also the potentially, I don't think that happens very often, but the potential catastrophic uh, complication of patella fracture. Because with the central uh, third of the patellar tendon, there's also a bone block taken from the patella and also from the tibia. And that's how the graft is fixed. Mm-hmm. One bone block is fixed in the femur above the joint and one in the tibia below the joint. So probably 30, 40 years ago, that was definitely the standard of care where me- metal interference screws were used to fix those bone blocks in, in drill holes in the bones. However, uh, especially over the past 10, 15, 20 years, the soft tissue graft fixation methods have really improved significantly. And soft tissue grafts include the patient's own hamstring tendons, for example, Uh or it can be a tibialis anterior, tibialis posterior cadaver graft. And what do you like to use? So I have... Again, this comes down to a discussion with the patient. Yes. So if it's autographed, I like to use the hamstring tendon. Mm-hmm. And uh, some patients do not wish to have their own tendon harvested. Then yeah. I just uh, go to cadaver graft, yeah. Yeah, allograft. Yeah. I understand that because there's a lot of healing time for the place where you harvested the tissue as well as the healing time for the for the knee. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And in the case of hamstring grafts, Probably after about a month, patients don't have any donor side morbidity or pain. And probably the, the most common way to, uh, to use hamstring grafts would be to use uh, a quadru- quadrupled graft consisting of the semiten- uh, gracilis and semitendinosus tendons. So two different tendons, a piece of a two little tendons. bit of those. Uh-huh. Yes, and those are folded over, giving four strands of tissue. And that recreates the ACL ligament. Yes. Okay. Now, a technique that I adopted recently was actually to harvest only the semitendinosus, the slightly larger of the two tendons, and quadruple that and perform the ACL reconstruction all inside technique. Do you like that one better now? Is that your go-to one? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. because uh, patients ask if they will be lacking any function, any strength with harvesting uh, the hamstring tendons. And I think probably in an individual who's not a professional, they are not likely to notice the difference. And the studies have shown that the knee flexion torque comes in within 95% of the contralateral uh, knee. Meaning the opposite side. The opposite side. Yeah, 95% yeah. of the healthy side. Of the healthy yeah. side, and that's taking two hamstring tendons. Yeah. Now, when I take only one, that's going to be even less, less of an effect. Well, it sounds to me like that's a very good solution, and I want to thank you for taking so much time to sit here and talk with me about your journey here, all the things that you do, 
And we appreciate all your time at Meet the Doctors. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Andrew Bolchinski of DISC in Marina Del Rey, California. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.